This is Chapter 7 of Mark Twain, His Life and Work, a biographical sketch by William M. Clemens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 In England and Germany Read by John Greenman In 1872, Mark Twain sailed for England to arrange for the European publication of his works, and successfully securing Chatto and Windus as his English representatives, and the publishing house of Tauchnitz at Leipzig as his continental agent. Already he was widely known and quoted in England, and was a welcome guest. In speaking of his experience in London, he says, During my sojourn in smoky, dirty, grand old England, I received an invitation to attend a banquet there, and I went. It was one of those tremendous dinners where there are eight hundred to nine hundred invited guests. I hadn't been used to that sort of thing, and I didn't feel quite at home. When we took our seats at the table, I noticed that at each plate was a little plan of the hall, with the position of each guest numbered, so that one could see at a glance where a friend was seated by learning the number. Just before we fell to, someone, uh, the Lord Mayor or whoever was bossing the occasion, arose and began to read a list of those present. Number one, Lord so-and-so, number two, the Duke of something or other, and so on. When this individual read the name of some prominent political character or literary celebrity, it would be greeted with more or less applause. The individual who was reading the names did so in so monotonous a manner that I became tired and began looking about for something to engage my attention. I found the gentleman next to me, on the right, a well-informed personage, and I entered into conversation with him. I had never seen him before, but he was a good talker and enjoyed it. Suddenly, just as he was giving his views upon the future religious aspect of Great Britain, our ears were assailed by a deafening storm of applause. Such a clapping of hands I never heard before. It sent the blood into my head with a rush, and I got terribly excited. I straightened up and commenced clapping my hands with all my might. I moved about in my chair and clapped harder and harder. Who is it? I asked the gentleman on my right. Whose name did he read? Samuel L. Clemens, he answered. I stopped applauding. I didn't clap any more. It kind of took the life out of me, and I sat there like a mummy and didn't even get up and bow. It was one of the most distressing fixes I ever got into, and it will be many a day before I forget it.
Mark lectured on various occasions in England with striking success. Rev. H. R. Hawes, who heard him at this time, writes, I heard him once at the Hanover Square Rooms. The audience was not large nor very enthusiastic. I believe he would have been an increasing success had he stayed longer. We had not time to get accustomed to his peculiar way, and there was nothing to take us by storm. He came on the platform and stood quite alone. A little table with the traditional water-bottle and tumbler was by his side. His appearance was not impressive, not very unlike the representation of him in the various pictures in his Tramp Abroad. He spoke more slowly than any other man I ever heard, and did not look at his audience quite enough. I do not think that he felt altogether at home with us, nor we with him. We never laughed loud or long. We sat throughout expectant, and on the qui-vive, very well interested and gently simmering with amusement, with the exception of one exquisite description of the old Magdalen ivy-covered collegiate buildings at Oxford University, I do not think there was one thing worth setting down in print. I got no information out of the lecture, and hardly a joke that would wear, or a story that would bear repeating. There was a deal about the dismal, lone uh, Silverland, the, the story of the Mexican plug that bucked, and a duel which never came off, and another duel in which no one was injured, and we sat patiently enough through it, fancying that by and by the introduction would be over and the lecture would begin, when Twain suddenly made his bow and went off. It was over. I looked at my watch. I was never more taken back. I had been sitting there exactly an hour and twenty minutes. It seemed ten minutes at the outside. If you have ever tried to address a public meeting, you will know what this means. It means that Mark Twain is a consummate public speaker. If ever he chose to say anything, he would say it marvelously well. But in the art of saying nothing in an hour, he surpasses our most accomplished parliamentary speakers. Mr. Twain relates, as one of the most harrowing experiences of his life, a six-hours ride across England, his fellow-traveller an Englishman, who, shortly after they started, drew forth the first volume of the English edition of Innocence Abroad from his pocket, and calmly perused it from beginning to end, without a smile. Then he drew forth the second volume and read it as solemnly as the first. Mark says he thought he should die, yet John Bull was probably enjoying it, after his own undemonstrative style. Upon his return from England in 1873, in conjunction with Charles Dudley Warner, Mark Twain issued his fourth book, The Gilded Age, which met with remarkable sale in this country and in Europe. In 1876 there appeared the Atlantic Monthly, that famous fragment, Punch Brothers Punch with Care. It had a curious origin. Early in April 1875, the city line of the New York and Harlem Railroad Company, having adopted the punch system, posted in the panels of their cars a card of information and instruction to conductors and passengers, 
both of whom were indirectly requested to watch the other it read as follows the conductor when he receives a fare must immediately punch in the presence of the passenger a blue trip slip for an eight cents fare a buff trip slip for a six cents fare a pink trip slip for a three cents fare for coupon and transfer tickets punch the tickets the poesy of the thing was discovered almost as immediately as the conductor immediately punched and all sorts of jingles were accommodated to the measure in september the first poem appeared in print and various versions appeared in the new york and boston newspapers in the january eighteen seventy six atlantic mark twain's literary nightmare appeared with the following version conductor when you receive a fare punch in the presence of the passenger a blue trip slip for an eight cent fare a buff trip slip for a six cent fare a pink trip slip for a three cent fare punch in the presence of the passenger chorus punch brothers punch with care punch in the presence of the passenger said mark i came across these jingling rhymes in a newspaper a little while ago and read them a couple of times they took instant and entire possession of me all through breakfast they went waltzing through my brain and when at last i rolled up my napkin i could not tell whether i had eaten anything or not i had carefully laid out my day's work the day before a thrilling tragedy in the novel which i am writing i went to my den to begin my deed of blood i took up my pen but all i could get to say was punch in the presence of the passenger i fought hard for an hour but it was useless my head kept humming a blue trip slip for an eight cent fare a buff trip slip for a six cent fare and so on and so on without peace or respite the day's work was ruined i could see that plainly enough i gave up and drifted downtown and presently discovered that my feet were keeping time to that relentless jingle when i could stand it no longer i altered my step but it did no good those rhymes accommodated themselves to the new step and went on harassing me just as before i returned home and suffered all the afternoon suffered all through an unconscious and unrefreshing dinner suffered and cried and jingled all through the evening went to bed and rolled tossed and jingled right along the same as ever got up at midnight frantic and tried to read but there was nothing visible upon the whirling page except punch 
punch in the presence of the passenger by sunrise i was out of my mind and everybody marveled and was distressed at the idiotic burden of my ravings the literary nightmare awakened horse-car poets throughout the world algernon charles swinburne in la revue des deux mondes had a brief copy of french verses written with all his well-known warmth and melody le chant du conducteur ayant été pays le conducteur percera en plein vue du voyageur quand il reçoit trois sous un coupon vert un coupon jaune pour six sous c'est l'affaire et pour huit sous c'est un coupon couleur de rose en plein vue du voyageur cœur donc percez soigneusement mes frères tout en plein vue des voyageurs etc the western an enterprising st louis magazine had a terrible attack and addressing marco twain it came out in a latin anthem with the following chorus pungite fratres pungite pungite cum amore pungite pro vectore diligensime pungite a man who had just been reading the literary nightmare said the alston nevada reveille stepped into a main street saloon muttering punch brothers punch with care punch in the presence of the passenger when a retired prize-fighter who was snoozing in a corner got up and accosting the nightmare fellow demanded whose ears are you going to punch you bloody duffer the other fellow tried to explain but the fighter insisted that he the other fellow had said punch brothers punch with care punch that big feller square in the ear the bridgeport standard man said mark twain will sail for europe on business in the spring but if he plays any jokes on the captain there and don't come down with the regular fare the captain'll probably rip and tear and punch him in the presence of the passenger when the adventures of tom sawyer appeared in eighteen seventy six the fame of mark twain was universal in this volume he revealed the story of his boyhood days on the mississippi and his pranks and adventures in the town of hannibal it was published as a book for boys and commanded an enormous sale edition after edition being exhausted in fact tom sawyer sold better than any of his books excepting innocence abroad in the meanwhile the gilded age had been dramatized and the production of the comedy on the american stage netted the author large sums of money injun joe one of the principal characters in tom sawyer still lives at hannibal missouri and is one of the noted individuals of the town he drives an old white horse and a red express wagon borne down on one side from long and hard service joe hauls trunks from the depot and chores around with his horse and wagon he loves a dollar more than anybody else in the town and out of his meager earnings he has accumulated quite a fortune he owns twelve tenement houses in hannibal ranging in value from five hundred dollars to a thousand dollars each yet from the clothes that he wears one would naturally think that 
he would be constantly in dread of the ragman coming along and casting him into a sack of old iron and rags a well-known literary critic in reviewing tom sawyer said this literary wag has performed some services which entitle him to the gratitude of his generation he has run the traditional sunday school boy through his literary mangle and turned him out washed and ironed into a proper state of flatness and collapse that whining canting early dying anemic creature was the nauseating model held up to the full-blooded mischievous lads of bygone years as worthy of their imitation he poured his religious hypocrisy over every honest pleasure a boy had he whined his lachrymose warnings on every playground he vexed their lives so when mark grew old enough he went gunning for him and lo wherever his soul may be the skin of the strumous young pietist is now neatly tacked up to view on the sunday school door of to-day as a warning and the lads of to-day see no particular charm in a priggish hydropathical existence in eighteen seventy seven appeared a volume of his complete sketches which included most of his fugitive newspaper articles in the following year april eleventh eighteen seventy eight he sailed for europe in the steamship holsatia he was accompanied by his family and after traveling in england france and switzerland settled down to spend the summer in germany here he obtained the materials for his famous book a tramp abroad in this volume harris guide and courier is introduced to the reader harris is not only invited to bow promiscuously but is set on to talk to doubtful people to entertain bores and generally to be the butt of embarrassing situations mr clemens made a minute study of the germans their manners habits tastes and amusements we all remember his treatment of the cases and gender in the german grammar meine guten freunde meines guten freunde meinen guten freundem and den and dem until one feels one might better go without friends in germany than take all this trouble about them what a bother he cries it is to decline a good male but that is nothing to the trouble we are landed in by the female every man has a gender and there is no sense or system in the distribution in german a young lady has no sex while a turnip has thus you say wilhelm where is the turnip she has gone to the kitchen where is the accomplished young lady it has gone to the opera still better were his illustrations of the german fishwife his argument with a raven his adventures with a blue jay and his perilous journey on the river raft were afterward exquisitely described in a tramp abroad published in eighteen eighty while on his return from germany he tarried in london and glasgow and while in the latter city was elected a member of the scottish society of literature and art End of chapter 7 Read by John Greenman